I want to give you the perspective of a lady who wrote some thoughts about Easter Sunday morning. Listen. How I love this special season with its promise of resurrection. There's a quiet, holy feeling, an expectancy as if once again Christ is going to burst the bounds of the grave and we will be first-hand witnesses to the miracle. On Easter morn, I like to arise early and imagine that I walk slowly and softly to the tomb with the other women. I stand with them in awe and amazement when I see that the stone has been rolled away. I'm filled with joy and hope as I realize that my Lord is not there. He is risen. I run with them, holding my skirt so that it doesn't get in the way, breathless, eyes blinded by tears, voices quivering with excitement, words tumbling out. He's alive. Jesus lives. This is a time of cleansing, a time of meditation on Him, the lover of our souls. It is a time of preparing for a walk of learning, of growing and falling, of joy and hurts as we press on toward Easter. A time of hungering and yearning for wholeness in Him. A journey fraught with pain, the sweet pain of growth. Press on toward Easter and all that is before you. A cross, yes, but how glorious that triumph as you also rise free from all that is earthly. A victory birthed in Him, a death experienced through Him, and a resurrection of Him in you. Christ died for me. Christ lives for me. I heard a story some years ago about a man who went in to see his psychiatrist and uh, he said, Doctor, I think I'm dead. The uh, doctor tried to assure him that he wasn't, that he had all of the vital signs, but uh, the man was not uh, persuaded. The psychiatrist knew there was something wrong in his head, so he was trying to think of some convincing argument for his uh, liveliness, and so he, uh, he said, Look, do, uh, do dead men bleed? And he said, No, no, dead men don't bleed. The doctor reached over and picked up his uh, letter opener and stabbed him in the back of the hand, and the man looks at his hand as the blood gushed out, and he said, My word, dead men do bleed after all. <laughs> The reason I like that story is because that actually happened to me one time. I was not stabbed in the back of my hand, but I had a good friend, businessman acquaintance of mine, who invited me out to lunch. He said, I've got an enormous problem I'd like to talk over with you, and I'll buy your lunch if you'll, if you'll try to help me. And I'm always uh, open to that sort of a deal. <laughs> and uh, as we sat down and, and chatted a while, we went through the normal pleasantries, and uh, he said, you know, I think I'm dead. I, I didn't try to dissuade him because I could. I I had to agree. I, I knew the man pretty well, and I could see that dead look in his eyes, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. He he was truly dead. Uh, he had arrived, as a friend of mine says, he has all he had all of the all of the marks of having arrived. He had a beautiful home and a lovely wife and the requisite two point five kids and the six handicap and shortness of breath and and all the things we're supposed to have at that age, but uh, he was dead. 
he, he had arrived and he had no place else to go and he was bored and jaded and, and he didn't want anything more out of life. He was dead. And what occurred to me were the words that I want to read to you this morning from Ephesians 2. If you have a Bible, will you turn there with me? The first ten verses of Paul's uh, letter that we call the letter to the Ephesians. And I briefed him a little bit on the background of this book, pointed out that this is the Apostle Paul writing, and it's uh, sometime in the middle of the uh, first century A.D., And he's writing to Christians that were scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia and perhaps all through the Roman Empire, little groups of Christians gathered in churches. And he's writing to remind them of what life used to be like. That's a good thing to do every once in a while. Most of us have what psychologists call uh, retrospective optimism. We tend to look back at things with rose-colored glasses and think that things were a whole lot better than... uh, than they are, like, like the Israelites who came out of Exodus or came out of Egypt and began to complain that, that they didn't have some of the food they had in Egypt and they had forgotten the slavery and the hardship of their, uh, of their years there. So it's good to look back, and that's what Paul does for these, for these Christians. He says, once upon a time, in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I pointed out that that's a, that's a real problem. That's an authentic problem. Uh, many, many people in, within the human race are, are dead by reason of their trespasses and sin. I, I pointed out that the, the problem with us is that we're separated from the life of God as a result of our, of our sin, our rebellion, what Paul calls trespasses and sin. And I think there's some significance to the fact that he doubles up on the terms. We all know what it means to trespass. If you trespass, you uh, occupy somebody else's space. You invade their turf. You go where you're not supposed to go. You uh, invade their privacy. Uh, and that's a serious thing. You know, you wander around in the hills here and you see signs that say, no trespassing, and, and that's what the people mean, no trespassing. They, they don't want you on their turf. And if we ignore the signs, we're rebelling against uh, their, their wishes. Uh, Carolyn is always concerned because I have such a cavalier attitude toward no trespassing signs. Uh, it's, it, it's because I have always felt that farmers and ranchers are basically very benign, very kindly people. And, and as long as I don't uh, harm their livestock or trample on their crops, they don't care if I walk across their fields to get to a stream or whatnot. But really, you know, I discover that that's not always true. Um, some people have, I, I think some people think about God in those terms, that he's like a kindly old farmer. And if you happen to uh, get on his, uh, if you trespass, you know, he, he just overlooks it. It's no big thing. I read a story this past week about a man who was a notorious womanizer, and he uh, died, and, and uh, when he woke up, he was in heaven, and he was frankly surprised that he had made it, and he saw St. Peter there, and Peter ushered him through the gates into the celestial city, and he said, Now, wait a minute. He said, I, I know I shouldn't be here. And uh, Peter said, Well, there is a widespread misconception in, among the people in the human race that, uh, that we keep records up here, but actually we don't. And uh, so the man uh, went on his way through the city, and he, and, he, and he observed a group of people standing together, weeping and wailing and wringing their hands and, and crying and 
And he, and he said to Peter, what's wrong with those people? And Peter said, well, those are the people who thought we kept records. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's the way so many people think. You know, God doesn't keep records. There's no accounting. That He's just a sort of gigantic cosmic Santa Claus. And he'll, in the end, forgive everything, no matter what we've done. And yet Paul says... The major problem with the human race is that we are dead because of our trespasses and sins. The word trespass has to do with sins of commission. The word sins has to do with, with, uh, with sins of omission, just not doing what we're supposed to do, not measuring up, not living up to the standard. Missing the mark, basically, is the meaning of the, of the Greek term, just being wide of the mark. We're like a man who uh, buys a high-powered hunting rifle and goes out in the field, sights it in, and then goes out off to hunt elk. And uh, he considers everything, distance and load and, and trajectory and shadows and light and, and windage. And uh, he zeroes in on, the, on an elk and he, and he pulls the trigger and shoots himself in the foot. You know, with all of our best, uh, with all of our good intentions, we, we're always wide of the mark. And one of these days we're going to stand before God and he's going to say that was a marvelous uh, performance, but you missed the whole point. You missed the whole point of life. Now, that's what, that's what Paul is saying. We, as a human race, are dead by virtue of our trespasses and sin. And what's worse, we can't do anything about it. Reformation is impossible because we're under the control of certain malevolent, malignant, evil forces that, that, that prevent us from making ourselves alive. Let me read on verse 2. Paul says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we, he's referring to we, we Jews, he's contrasting in verse 3 the activity of, uh, of uh, self-righteous, religious, tithe-paying, uh, spiritually-minded people, he says, who were just like the Gentiles. Among them, that is, um, with reference to these transgressions and sins, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of, of wrath. Uh, Paul says there are three enemies that the human race has, has always had, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And you say, ah, oh, you're not going to drag out that old theological saw about the world, the flesh, and the devil, are you? That's been assigned to the theological attic a long time ago. But, but I am because the Apostle Paul does. And he says the real problem is that we are a dominated race. We're controlled by forces that we're not even aware of, the ideas and thinking and principles and laws and ways of approaching life that, that seep and creep into the nooks and crannies of our mind even without being aware of it. Now, the world that Paul is talking about here is not the world that we see. It's not the visible world. It's the unseen world of ideas. It's what we would call today culture. Now, when we think of culture, we, you, know, you, you think of African death masks and uh, Polynesian marriage customs and those sorts of things. But what we don't realize is that we all have culture. Culture is all around us. 
like the air we breathe or the, the water that fish swim in. We're not even aware of it. But these, these ideas begin to infiltrate our mind, even without being aware that we're being assaulted. Ideas that come in through the media, through television and through literature that, that subtly change our, our thinking and, and shape us and make us secular in our thinking. The world that, that Paul describes here is basically secular society. And we in, in Boise today are basically a secular people. Now, secularism is a philosophy. That's a thought-out philosophy. You just kind of sit down and think that out. But secularization is something that happens to us without even being aware of it. It's something that just rubs off on you. And uh, essentially, it's this idea that who needs God? We can live without God. The idea that we don't permit children to pray in schools today is really just a symptom of a greater problem, but we don't think that God fits anywhere in education or in politics or in domestic life or in, in any element of, of our life. God is just nowhere. We don't even want him in the room with us. Uh, my oldest son, Randy, who now is 24, when he was... Uh, I don't know, three or four years old. I, I was praying with him one night in his room. He, he watched some television pro, uh, program. He was frightened. And I was trying to assure him, and he was all right. He, that everything was going to be okay. Mom and Dad were there. And I turned the lights on, let him look under the, under the bed, and did all the things you do with children. He was still afraid. And finally, in desperation, I said, Well, Randy, God is here in the room with you. And that was the wrong thing to say. That just scared the living daylights out of him. <laughs> And his attitude was, if God is in this room, I'm going to sleep in the other room. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's, that's the way we look at things. We don't want God around. We don't want to give him the time today. We don't want him in our life. He's just a big bother. A number of years ago, Dennis Lenskog and I went out to a little town south of us here in the desert to start a, a Bible discussion group in a home. We, he, he was That's before he went to Canada as a missionary and... He wanted some experience in pioneering and starting a, uh, a church on his own. So we, we went out knocking on doors to try to start a Bible study group. And I'll never forget knocking on one screen door, and out came this crusty old rancher. He'd been out there for something like 65 or 70 years. He was in his 80s. And uh, I said, uh, would you be interested in a Bible discussion group? He said, what would you do? And I said, well, we just talk about God from the Bible. He said, look. He said, I haven't needed God for 80 years. Why do I need him now? And not all of us are that crass in the way we put it, but you know, when it comes right down to it, that, that's the way we think. And, and, and we have come by that so naturally, so easily, we aren't even aware of it. That's what our secular society has done to us. It's taken God out of our life. Second thing Paul says is that we are victimized by the devil. And I'm sure you're thinking, now you don't really believe in a personal devil, do you? Please. You know, that went out with the idea of um, medieval gargoyles up in the roofs of houses to keep the demons away. We don't really believe, but I do, because Jesus and the apostles did. And because Jesus described the prince of the power of the air, as he's, as he's called here. By the way, that word air is not atmosphere. It's the world of unseen things. Satan is, is the power behind the powers, the authority behind the authorities. He's like a master puppeteer 
who's playing on the affairs of, of people here to control their lives. Paul says in another place that we have been victimized by Satan to do his will. And I know that strikes some of you as odd, but that's the explanation for what is so wrong, what's gone so wrong with our world. And I think in a, in a sophisticated area like this where people are more highly educated, Satan's uh, activities are even more subtle and deceptive because he doesn't want us to be aware of his activity, but he's there. And Jesus said he is a liar and a murderer. He deceives in order to destroy And he's the one who's behind all the rape and the ruin and the destruction and the havoc that's been wreaked in the human race from the very beginning. He's the enemy. Now, the third thing that Paul says here is that uh, we're dominated by by the flesh, the world, the devil, and the flesh. He says, basically, we're self-indulgent. We indulge the desires or the passions of the flesh. And the mind, or the impulses, he uses an unusual word here, a plural form of a noun that only occurs here, that most people agree means impulses. The fact that he's making is that we're self-indulgent and we're impulsive. The flesh is not the skin on our bodies, but it's our basic human nature, and and resident in that human nature are passions and moods and drives that we can't control, and it causes us to do things that we can't understand. That's the enemy within the world and the flesh are without, or the world and the devil are without. The flesh is the Trojan horse that does us in. You know, from, from whence come all these moods and drives, bizarre passions and weird things that control us that we can't understand that come out of our mind and out of our emotions? Where, where do they come from? Why can't we subdue them? Why are they so habitual? Why do we always lose our tempers at the worst possible time? Why are we so impulsive and do do strange things that are, that are financially destructive and emotionally destructive to those around us that we love. Why do we lash out at people we love the most? Paul says it's really very simple. We're not free. We may think we are, but we're not free. We're dominated by the world of ideas around us, by the arch enemy, the great conspirator who's behind every conspiracy, and by the passions and drives of our, of our flesh, and we cannot get ourselves free. We are dead. You understand that? We are dead, impotent, powerless to do anything about our condition. And that's why we get bored and jaded and we feel wasted. And as the Rolling Stones say, we we just can't get no satisfaction. That's why. One of my favorite poets whom I quote so often in my column is Algernon uh, Swinburne, crusty old fellow and the thing I like about him is that he's so explicitly anti-Christian you can't miss what he's what he's saying and one of his poems goes something like this uh, from too much love of living from hope and fear set free uh, I thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be that no one lives forever that dead men rise up never that even the weariest river runs somewhere out to sea. Now we say, boy, that's, a, that's existential courage. That's shaking your fist in the face of your anguish. I say, that's just bald despair. That's all. That dead men rise up never. And it's not only true of our bodies, it's true of, uh, it's true of our spirits. They're dead. Stone cold dead. Did I come out of the womb, as Bob Dylan puts it? We're dead. We'd like to be able to raise ourselves. You know, there's a, there's a 
I don't, I don't know if it's fair to call it a science, but there's a lot of thinking about uh, the art of cryogenics and freezing human bodies and and maintaining them in uh, in a frozen state until downstream when we can cure cancer and whatnot, and then we can resuscitate the body and and cure the disease and bring them back to life. But the great question is, how do you resuscitate a dead carcass after it's been frozen? No one's ever been able to do that. What makes us think we'll be able to do it uh, in the future? It's this sort of wistful thinking that drives us on to think somehow we're going to solve all of these problems, but we never do. The only person who solved the problem of death was our Lord Jesus. God raised him from the dead. And that's why Paul goes on to give us the answer in verses 4 and following. Note the contrast. In verse 1 he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's the motivation. The great love with which he loved us. Why would he love us when we're rebels? When we're determined sinners? When we're running away from God as fast as we can run? When we never give him thanks or give him the time of day? I've often thought if I uh, whittle a little man out of wood and had the capacity to give it life, and the first thing it did was to open its mouth and sass me, uh, I'd probably cuff the thing in the mouth and break it in half. But God didn't do that. Despite our waywardness, he loved us. He loved us. And uh, he is rich in mercy. Mercy is always his love extended to the helpless because of his great love with which he, uh, and because of his grace, which is his, his love for, for us who are worthless. I've said before, that the way I distinguish between mercy and grace is that uh, in the Peanuts series, uh, Charlie Brown needs mercy. Lucy needs grace. <laughs> Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, there's mystery here that I can't explain. All I know is that Paul says we've been identified with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection and ascension and present session. So that, that we are today seated in heavenly places. The word that he uses here stresses the quality of the thing rather than the actual place. We're not yet in heaven. But our life can have a heavenly quality. Because we've been lifted above, we've been raised out of our deadness, and we've been given a new life, which enables us to to live in freedom from all of these elements that so long have have dominated us and constrained us and frustrated us and kept us from being what we know we ought to be. That's what he's saying. And it's, it's all of God, you see. It's all of God. For by grace, it's unmerited favor. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that salvation, the whole process of trans- taking us from the kingdom of darkness and transplanting us into the kingdom of light, lifting us out of our death-like state and giving us a new life, the whole deal, the whole thing is of him. That salvation, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. The whole thing depends on him. I can't do a thing. I'm impotent. I'm powerless. But God gives life. 
And not only that, he continues to give life and give us a quality of life that transcends anything we can do for ourselves. That's what he means in verse 10 when he says, we are his workmanship. That uh, word is translated workmanship here is the Greek term from which we get our word poem. It's poema in Greek. It means, uh, it, it refers to the creation of an artist, of an artist, a painting, a masterpiece, a poem. God says, you are his masterpiece when you have felt the touch of the master on your life and he's begun to free you from your habits and set you free to be the kind of man or woman that you desperately want to be. You see, it's all of him. He did it. He's the artist. It's his artistry that he's creating in your life from the very beginning. He planned to make of you a beautiful and glorious creature. It's not just words. It's truth. So that the whole world would look at God and say, look what God did. Now look at me and say, my, what a marvelous person Roper is, how, how together he is. Look what he's done with his life. But they would look at God and, and say, look what God has created. Look what he's done. What a marvelous piece of handiwork. I went over to the art museum yesterday with Carolyn and Josh to see the exhibit of, of uh, Idaho artists. Some of you may have seen it. It was recently shown at the National Art Museum in Washington, D.C., and they brought it back here. As I wandered through, I, when I saw a piece of art that I particularly liked, I invariably looked at the card that indicated the, the artist and, in a sense, worshipped and praised the artist. I didn't praise the painting. The painting didn't do anything. It didn't produce itself. It didn't spontaneously generate. It was the artist who did that. And I just stopped to, to express appreciation in my own, own mind for what the artist had done, and it struck me as I was going through that art museum, that that's exactly what will happen through the, through the ages ahead as, as men and women around you see what God is doing in your life and how he's changing you and perfecting you and, and, and making you like the Son. They'll, they'll give praise and glory to God. That's why he says it's all his doing. It's not our doing. It's his. Now, the choice we have in life is uh, between a, a kind of do-it-yourself uh, thing, and most of us can look at our lives and see the result of unskilled labor. Uh, we've pretty well botched the thing up, made, uh, made a mess of it. Or we, you, you can let God go to work on your life and begin to change you. And, and he'll create something far beyond anything you ever dreamed, anything you ever thought. He's the master at that sort of thing. Uh, I've got, uh, oh, I don't know, five or six fly rods around my house, more fly rods than any person reasonably ought to have. And uh, I justify it because I, I build my own. And uh, in the winter months, that's a fun thing to do. It's nice to be able to work with your hands. And, and I, I am very, very proud of those fly rods. As a matter of fact, when I go fishing, I, I always sort of bring them out, you know, and, and uh, hope that somebody will ask me, where'd you get that neat fly rod? And I said, well, I made that fly rod myself. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, I was over at Hal Nutton's house. And he said, come here, I want to show you something. He took me downstairs in the basement. And he brought out a custom-made rod that had been made by a master fly rod maker. And it is a thing of beauty. I couldn't take my hands off of it. You know, I don't show anybody my fly rods anymore. <laughs> I sort of sneak them out of the thing, you know. And I just... No comparison, believe me. No comparison. You know, why, why do we want... 
why do we, do we want to go on being the product of unskilled labor when, when the architect of the universe, the one who planned human life, who has such a, a wonderful and glorious plan for you, wants to put his hands on your life and, and change you and make you into the person you always wanted to be? That's what the gospel is. A lot of people think uh, believing the gospel is believing a lot of hard things, things that are incredible or implausible, unbelievable. Or as Dorothy Sayers uh, puts it, they think that becoming a Christian is giving up strong drink and bad companions and going to church. No, it's not that. What you have to do is realize you're dead. That's all. You just have to know you're dead. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be handsome. You don't have to be. You don't even have to be smart. All you have to know is that you're dead. That's all. And Christ will make you alive. That's the starting point. And then He'll begin to create out of your life and out of mine the, the beautiful thing that He has intended from all eternity. That's what He means when He when He says uh, it's a it's something that He's planned from the very beginning. We are His workmanship, created for good works. It's all of his doing. I, I'm sure some of you read my column a few weeks back about the two men that came into the, into the synagogue, into the church meeting, and uh, one fellow was a church-goer, tithe-paying, uh, authentic uh, religious man, and uh, he stands up and he points to this other fellow who was a publican, who was a sinner, quizzling. He'd sold out to the Roman Empire. He says, oh, I, God, I sure do thank you. I'm not like that guy. Sits down. The other fellow gets up, and he recalls uh, the fact that his car is parked out on the curb, and he's got a case of scotch in the back seat and two women in the front. And he shuffles his feet and looks at the floor, and he says, "God, be merciful in the man's center." And Jesus said, "I'll tell you who went out of that place reconciled. It was the man who realized he was dead. He realized that he didn't have a hope. He had only a prayer." And uh, that's, that's where we are today. We, we stand in, in, in total need. The crisis is total. This is not some small uh, picadillo. You know, it's not just that, that we've sort of ruffled God's feathers. We are rebels in his kingdom. We're dead by reason of our, of our trans- trespasses and sins. And only a resurrection will set things right. It takes that kind of radical uh, handling of the situation. Only a resurrection. In all of history, our, our Lord is the only one who is able to break the bonds of death. And he can do the same for you. If, if you're in a death-like state today and uh, you let God know that you realize you're dead and you want that salvation, he'll give it to you. And not only will, you get, will he give you immortality, but he'll give you the power to rise above your circumstances right now. That's what the Christian life is all about. Uh, as, as Dylan puts it in another place, you've got to serve somebody. We, we either serve uh, God or, or, or we serve one of these other forces at work in the world. There, there's no neutral ground. There's this myth that somehow I can get myself free, but you can't. We'll, we'll, only serve, we'll either serve God or we'll serve our passions and our desires and the ideas and ideologies of, of this world and, and more significantly the prince of, of the power of the spiritual realm will be his dupe, his ploy. But if we give our heart to the Lord Jesus, he lifts us out of that dominion. Let's pray. Would you this morning consider seriously uh, praying uh, the prayer that, that little children pray when they sing, 
into my heart, into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Will you open up your life and your being and invite the Lord to be Lord of your life and lift you out of your, your deadness and give you eternal life. Transplant you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. You can do that right where you're sitting. Lord Jesus, come in. Save me by your mercy and by your grace. Father, thank you for the great love with which you loved us that brought you to die so we can live. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.